You're listening to Chats Under the Sun with Jacob Volk. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I think it was the theologians who first started the idea. Later, the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. What you are comes out in what you do. You see the point? Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. Alrighty. Tyler. Hello. Or Dr. Flat. Sorry. You can, you can call me Tyler. All right. You're not one of my students, so. That's, that, this is true. Um, I'm trying to think where I first met you, and I think it was probably at the book, one of the reading book lectures things you give at the bookstore. Yep, that's right. What, what's the official title of those? Of the lectures? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I don't know. It, it is a wonderful thing that happens on our campus, though. They, they just recently redid our library. Mm. It's much nicer now. One of the things they wanted to do, I think Dr. Moeller wanted to do, our president, was create a space for that kind of uh, public lecture and interaction. I love lecturing in that space because it's very open. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people walking by through the bookstore or to our coffee shop. It's actually happened, as a matter of fact, last week I was giving a talk there people will be walking by and stop because they've heard something you've said yeah. and then kind of filter into the back of the audience. And may, this might just be my vanity as far as somebody who has to speak in public sometimes, but it's very gratifying to see people caught yeah. on their way to do something else to, to stop and listen to what you have to say. So I love talking in that space. And yeah, you were there with uh, a friend of yours mm-hmm. And you guys came up and introduced yourselves, and I was I was instantly interested because you said that you were Canadians. Yes, sir. And I don't meet that many Canadians on campus. Yeah. So. And um, and then I and then we ran to each other. We dialogued a little bit about doing this podcast on books and reading. And then I sort of had this weird double vision because I would have um, some friends of mine at Redeemer talk about a Doctor Flat, <laughs> and then I would sort of have this yeah. There's a Dr. Flat, and there was never a click for me what was going on until I started Googling properly, and it was like, there's two of them. Yes. And there's a Baptist one down here, and then uh, another one at Redeemer, and that's your brother. Yes. So Which some, some listeners will know who are Redeemers. Yeah, yes. I have to clarify that I am Dr. T. Flat, not Dr. K. N. Flat, who uh, is far more accomplished and intelligent in every way. He's, <laughs> he's also my older brother. He's six years older. Okay. So he's had his PhD quite a while longer than I have. As a matter of fact, I can't remember now off the top of my head in what year he, he became Dr. Flat, but um, he was always destined to be Dr. Flat. Even, even when we were kids, we used, to, we used to talk about, you know, his curiosity and <clears throat> The famous thing in my family, I don't, his, his students will be amused to discover this. He taught himself how to subtract huh. when, he, when he was really young. I can't remember exactly how young he was, but we often cite this as evidence for his, his incredible talents. I, I didn't do anything like that. I still don't know how to subtract, as a matter of fact. But I've learned a lot from him. And uh, yeah, we, it's a wonderful thing to have a sibling in sort of the same line of work, yeah. you know, it makes talking shop uh, especially delightful. And we have overlapping interests. And of course, a lot of the interests that I have to start with are due just to his influence in my life. Okay. Uh, I, I've kind of gone in, in a slightly different direction in terms of the subject matter that we study, but not really. And I mean, we're, we're both so interested in each other's 
research and writing and, and teaching. We could talk all day without a break yeah. uh, on so many subjects. He's, he's a fun guy to, to be around. My other brother, uh, I should say too, Cor- <coughs> Corey Flatt, uh, is, is not Dr. Flat, but he may as well be. He's a tremendously successful uh, startup entrepreneur. Hmm. And uh, man, he's, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit in awe of both of them. Hopefully they don't listen to this and get, get big, big heads, but they're, they're a tremendous pair, those two. So. Okay, so then we were talking a little bit about this on the, the stairway up to this room. Tell me a little bit about your, about your childhood. Like, what, what was the pathway that you took from whatever your childhood looked like up to these, uh, these titles called doctor? Yeah, I think, I think I had a, a pretty normal suburban childhood. I remember it being a very happy one. Our house was, was a stable and uh, nurturing place to be. Both of my parents loved to read and reading from my very earliest memories was, was always just a frequent activity in my home. There were lots of books around. My parents themselves read to us from a very early age. And I think I probably can't credit that too much just in terms of making this a normal fun activity Mm. from, from my earliest years that I could share with my family. And my parents picked excellent books to read to us. You know, I think we were read Tolkien and Lewis books, and I don't even remember exactly every individual book that we were read, but, and of course the Bible too. I was encouraged to read the Bible and given a Bible from a very young age and began to explore it on my own. And I, you know, I can't possibly even begin to fathom the many ways that God has used that to shape my life in every way, Mm. you know, but yeah, our, our home was a, a very literate, a consciously, deliberately literate one, and very grateful for that. And my, my brothers and I, you know, when you, when you have three siblings, relatively close in age, Corey's three years older than I am, and Kevin is six years older than I am, so there's kind of a nice even gap there. I don't know how intentional that was on the part of my parents, but that's how it happened. You're kind of natural playmates for one another, mm. and both of my brothers have really live active imaginations. And I, I think I do too. And so the games that we would play together, the stuff that we would talk about, we would go outside, there was a forest not far from our house, and we would just invent all kinds of scenarios and imaginary worlds that we would play in together. And uh, because I was the youngest, you know, if we were making up roles for each other, I usually got the worst and lowest ranked <laughs> roles. But even then, like, you know, when you're the youngest brother, like, you're just kind of happy to be included. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still feel that way a lot of times. I'm just happy to be included when people are doing <laughs> fun things. And uh, yeah, Kevin, especially, you know, as the oldest brother, would sometimes sort of set the imaginative tone mm. for whatever game mm. we were playing. And his, his imagination was fired by things that he was reading in our home. European history and, and uh, all sorts of interesting stories and tales. And so I think all of that made my childhood really full of all sorts of sparks of interest and in life and color that I'm really grateful for. I just remember a tremendous sense of curiosity and, and delight in, in all sorts of things. And yeah. 
So my parents deserve enormous praise and credit for just creating an environment in which that could happen. And then the, the weird and wonderful nature of my brothers, yeah, yeah. Had, a, had a lot to do with it. Did you guys um, go to school or were you homeschooled? We went to public school. Okay. All three of us. Yeah, in Canada. Gotcha. Interesting. And then you uh, mentioned to me your path took you to Waterloo? It did. Yeah. So there were a few reasons for that. One is Waterloo was sort of, well, there's a few large institutions in my hometown, which is, it's Kitchener slash Mm -hmm. Waterloo, the sort of twin, twin cities in a sense, physically contiguous, administratively separate uh, towns in Southern Ontario. And my mother was a chemistry lab instructor. She's retired now, but she used to be a chemistry lab instructor at the University of Waterloo. Not faculty, but staff. But she loved that job, and a lot of her life was was intertwined with campus life. And so when the time came for me to to decide whether or not I wanted to pursue a university education, Waterloo was a natural choice. I could live at home. Mm-hmm. I could save a lot of money. I got a bit of a tuition discount because of my mother, which did not hurt at all, I can tell you. And... Uh, and it just so happened that Waterloo had, still has, actually an incredible faculty in the field that attracted me most, which is classics. And I, didn't, I don't think I even appreciated when I applied to Waterloo how excellent their classics faculty mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. I sort of discovered it later <clears throat> and understood at length how providential it was that that is the place that I chose. Yeah. So... So why, why classics? Like what gravitated you? Cause I, I have a, technically I have a bachelor in humanities and a minor in classics. Okay. And for me, the classics was mostly, I mean, Bible-ish, you know, Bible or like Bible <laughs> adjacent, I suppose. And philosophy could be too, I suppose. Yeah. So that's kind of what it was like, as I was preparing to go to seminary, it was like, that sort of made the most sense to me. But mm-hmm. what seminary wasn't the road you were seeking after. So no, why not classics? At all. Um, you know, it's a bit of a mystery to me. I have to kind of reconstruct it. I have to sort of do research into my, the archaeology of my own brain to understand, yeah, how did I end up here? I think probably the, the kernel of it originally was just being really attracted by the historical and mythological stories that mm. flow still through our culture from the classical world. So... My daughter right now, she's beginning to learn some, some classical mythology. She's a toddler. She's three. And you have to be careful. <laughs> you know, Greek mythology, I've been teaching Aeschylus' Oresteia to our undergrads this week, and, and Greek mythology is pretty intense. Yeah. It's, it's kind of viewer discretion advised, you know. So we, but we're exposing our daughter to, to some of these things, and it's been taking me back to my first acquaintance with Greek mythology. As a matter of fact, there's a book that my parents uh, bought for me or gave to me. I, I, I can't remember the circumstances. And it just had illustrated stories from Greek and Norse mythology in it. I found it later as an adult again, and uh, it's, in my, it's in my office right now. But that was a, an enormous stimulant to my imagination, I think. Yeah. It was really lavishly illustrated, which, which helps when you're young. And so I got attracted to those stories, which are strange and, and oddly compelling. Hmm. And the kinds of stories you keep coming back to because they're, you can tell even as a kid, they're sort of impregnated with a kind of transcendental significance that you only ever sort of perceive out of the corner of your eye 
it's, it's sort of hard to articulate mm. exactly. Mm. Even as an adult, it's hard to articulate. This is true of fairy tales as well. Like there's a, there's a sense that there's something more here uh, about, about how the universe works and its mysteries. And, and I don't exactly know what that is or what it means, but I love these stories Yeah, because they're, they're, there's more than meets the eye to them. So that was part of it. And then I got really interested in Roman history, especially when I was an adolescent. And I remember I used to go to the public library all the time. This is another great argument for public libraries uh, as if we needed one. I used to go and get an atlas of Roman history out from the library repeatedly. Like I was probably, I was probably the only one there who, who took that book out repeatedly. But I used to pour over those maps. I really loved maps from childhood. And, uh, and so I, I started to realize, hey, it's not just mythology and interesting kind mm. of legendary stories. Even the real stories of many different episodes in Greek and Roman history are so compelling on their own um, that that was sufficient to drag me into it. And then once I first made contact kind of with the languages of the classical world and mm. especially the literature of the classical world, it was all over for me. You know, that decided it. That decided the whole rest of the course of my life. Hmm. I think it's interesting that you say that they're sort of Bible or theology adjacent. I think maybe that was part of it as well, in the sense that I was already exposed to a good deal of ancient history Mm -hmm. through reading the Old Testament in the Bible that my parents gave me. And I've always, this is a bit peculiar, I think, about me, I've always found it easier to understand the Old Testament than, than I have the New Testament. Huh. Now, just to be clear, you know, I, I feel like I understand both of them. I need to in order to, to do the job that I have. But, you know, in, in the New Testament, of course, there are stories as well. But the, in the New Testament, there's a lot of abstract reasoning. There's a lot of argumentation and exhortation. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, I just gravitated initially much more towards the story storytelling right. in the Old Testament. So I think the jump to classics was a short one in the sense that I was already immersed in the world of partly alien, partly very fresh and contemporary seeming kind of ancient events. Mm-hmm. That whole world just exercised a kind of spell over me. So mm. it, I'm sure there were some other factors as well that, that I don't even remember anymore. Mm. But Well, I'd love to, to eventually circle back around to, yeah. to the classics, but I'd like to, to finish the journey about how we ended up, uh, how we're sitting at Southern, I guess. So, after, after your undergrad, did you, what was the rest of the academic path looking like? So already, I think in my first year of undergrad, <clears throat> I knew with certainty, I'm going to go on and do a PhD. Okay. Because... How did your parents feel about that? <laughs> uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Well, cause was, I mean, your, I, was your brother already pursuing, like kind of in that trajectory? Um, at that point, I think he was already... I think he would already have been embarked on his master's degree okay. yeah, at that point. So there's a little of a template. Yeah, so right? he was going through it, and that helped me to, to be able to see at close hand, okay, this is what that life is, this mm-hmm. sort of looks like. Um, maybe the most important figure in helping me understand that is we actually had a family friend who was an academic, okay. who was one of my father's professors when he was a university student. And he was the first member of his family to go to university, which was a big deal. And he had a history professor um, who was just an incredible dynamo in the classroom. His name was Dr. Werner Packel. 
and uh, you can still read his books. He's passed away uh, now a number of years, but he wrote some great books, did some good research, but he, he was really, it was in the classroom that he shone and he would visit our house. He would come over to see my dad. It was one of those uh, teacher pupil relationships that endures mm-hmm. for decades, mm-hmm. even after, after college is done. And he was a wonderful, lively guy. He had white hair, sort of looked like Einstein a little bit, big, bushy, white eyebrows. And he would get a twinkle in his eye when he told funny and entertaining stories, which was all the time. So he would come over when we were kids. And every time he came over, he would drop off some of his old history textbooks and kind of cast offs from his library. Mm -hmm. And that I know had a huge influence on Kevin's life. I mean, Kevin's a historian in large part, I think, because of that influence. And, and on my life, too, I got some of those hand-me-down books. Some of them I only got when Kevin was done with them. <laughs> but uh, his life also, we looked at this guy and we thought, this guy's a master storyteller. It's just so engaging and fun to be around him. He has a sense of kind of the grand sweep of the Western tradition. And he's just, he's just endlessly fascinating. And good company, you know, not, not all academics are necessarily good company, but this man was, and we could immediately see why our dad gravitated to him and why he was, he was so beloved for his classroom teaching is because you were just mesmerized when you heard him talk. So I think that early on made me think, oh man, what a cool life he has. Even more than that, because, you know, when you're 13, you're not thinking in terms of salaries or job benefits. Right. I think I just looked at him and I thought, I want to be the kind of person that he is mm-hmm. because it was so attractive and appealing. And so by the time I finally arrived at university myself, I was pretty much resolved. I want to go as far along this track as I possibly can. And then once the track ends, I want to make my own, my own path yeah. afterwards, you know. And that was confirmed. I loved, I just absolutely drank in every minute of the college experience. And, you know, I like to tell my students, I liked it so much I've never left. A lot of people take a gap year, people who have more sense and wisdom than I do. At some point in all of the schooling, they say, hey, I need to take a year off and, you know, climb Mount Kilimanjaro or something edifying like that. I never did that. (laughs) You know, my whole life, my whole adult life has been on a campus. Yeah. Which, you know, maybe that's not healthy or good. I'm not necessarily holding this up to be emulated by people, but I love it. I, I love these institutions of learning and uh, what can happen in these relatively bare and, and unexciting seeming kind of classrooms. Yeah. Incredible things can transpire here. Yeah. And so I loved it from day one and I realized, okay, four years is not going to satisfy my, my thirst for learning cool. here. So, th- so then master's... Where and with what? I did my master's degree uh, at the University of Toronto. Okay, U of T. Uh, at U of T, that's right, in classics. And I lived at a place called Massey College there, mm-hmm. uh, which was a residential college kind of on the model of the Oxbridge sort of thing. You know, there's high table dinners <coughs> and you wear a gown to your meal, an academic gown to your meals. And you live in this little kind of cloistered community of students even though you take your classes out in the larger campus of the university. Right. Is it, is it a little uh, bit like the, the colleges at Cambridge? Yeah, it's like, like that. Same? Okay. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. it's intended to be. And that's a marvelous institution. The master of the college when I was there, John Fraser, who's still a, a really dear friend of mine, was a wonderful man who himself, for me, kind of embodied warmth, curiosity, storytelling, right. generosity, goodness, 
And so that was a really formative experience for me too. Not to mention the classics department at U of T, which mm-hmm. gave me so much. They were very patient with me. <laughs> and uh, I was thrilled to learn with, with all the professors there. Mm-hmm. And, and I, uh, every now and then I'll bump into one of them or, or uh, correspond with them. And I'm very grateful for what I learned from them. And so I was there for two years, and then I decided I wanted to try and apply to do a PhD here in the States. And that has its own kind of complicated history. <laughs> um, I've always just been drawn to the United States. We, we, my family has relatives who live in the States. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, that's a whole other, other tangent. But I, the, the idea of doing my schooling here and getting to know the United States while I was being educated was very appealing to me. And there's a lot of stellar institutions here, obviously, mm-hmm. and very old ones. And so I, I, you know, I rolled the dice, so to speak, and I applied to a whole bunch of places and um, ended up doing my PhD in Boston. And I was there for seven years, not quite seven years of my life, which was uh, a long time, but man, so full of joy and learning and, and wonderful friendships. Still have a lot of friends there. Still go back uh, from time to time. Hmm. And yeah, so I, I did a PhD in classics. Yeah. What hyper nerdy question did you obsess over for those seven years? <laughs> oh, well, there wasn't just one and all of the questions were hyper nerdy, but I ended up getting really interested in and, and writing my dissertation on Latin biblical epic poetry, which would take a whole episode just to explain. But the, the gist of it is, in late antiquity, in the later days of the Roman Empire, as, as the Christian way of life became more widespread in the Roman Empire, there were especially more Christians coming to the faith from the higher echelons of Roman society, mm. the aristocratic class there was a kind of spontaneous drive to produce Christian-themed literature that could kind of compete in quality and scope with the existing, the already then kind of classic canon of, of great literature. So for the Romans, this means writing epic poetry at the top of the scale of prestigious literature in the style of Virgil. Huh. That is poetry sort of like the Aeneid and the other, the other poems that Virgil wrote, but on Christian themes. So the, the first person to do this that we know of wrote in the reign of Constantine, so relatively early on in the fourth century. And I got really interested. There's a whole chain of poets after that one who followed and, and tinkered with this art form and tried to kind of use epic as a vehicle to, to talk about uh, and to ornament Christian doctrine. And I just found that, I found that to be a combination of a lot of just different interests in mind, my interest in the Romans, my interest in the epic tradition and in Virgil and in epic literature generally, and then my interest in Christian theology and in those early centuries of church history, all of that kind of came together. Uh, it also kind of leads into to certain themes that you find later in, in the medieval period of European history. So it was kind of the intersection of a bunch of things that interested me. That's really fascinating. I didn't even know. Thanks for saying so. <laughs> I, I, did, I didn't know that was a category of literature that existed. Oh, yeah. And do, in your estimation, did the quality get close to that of the Aeneid? Oh, no, not even close. No, of course <laughs> not. Um, but that's, <laughs> well, let me back up here. Okay, I'm, sh- I'm shooting from the hip a little bit. 
So no, but I'm not, I'm not insulting them by saying this because there's not one of those authors who would claim that they were, you know, anywhere in the same league with what they composed as, as the Aeneid because they all loved this book. Right. And it was part of their mental furniture from, from a young age. They would memorize it. You know, Augustine tells us stories about how when he was growing up in his Roman grammar school, he would memorize long, long swaths of the Aeneid and so forth. Um, but I would say they weren't wrong, I think. I mean, there's some weird things that happen in these books, but they weren't wrong to say the most deserving topic, subject matter... <laughs> for the august and awe-inspiring and beautiful power of epic poetry is Christ mm. and God's creation and the, the epic story of redemption. I think that instinct was, was correct and, yeah, a, and yeah. a good one. Different poets who attempted that succeeded to more or less degrees yeah. in, in, in realizing that. You yeah. know, they weren't all, they didn't all produce amazing poetry necessarily, but the best of them... I think succeeded in demonstrating, yeah, it's not crazy to use kind of the voice of epic song in a Christian context. In fact, it's it's uniquely appropriate in a sense. Hmm. What's really fascinating, and then I'll get off of this or I'll just end up rehashing my whole dissertation for you. What's really fascinating to me is that those poets discovered that the sorts of themes deeply embedded in Virgil's Aeneid, the questions of cosmic justice and order uh, and the disruptions of that order that it's concerned with were a kind of perfectly formed vehicle already ready to hand for them to repurpose for presenting a kind of Christian cosmology, mm. a Christian story of the universe. And one of the things that's really fascinating and a little bit mysterious to me is how how exactly did it come to be that there was such a natural convergence between the worldview, if you will, of pagan Virgil, mm-hmm. steeped in the pagan Roman and Greek classics, and the perspective of these Roman Christians. Obviously, there's some cultural, shared cultural property there, but um, in some ways, the, the Christian vision of reality is really radically different, right? Of course, from, from its pagan predecessors in the Roman Empire. And so th- the fact that those things could kind of, kind of come together mm more seamlessly than one would have expected. Mm. It's fascinating to me. And in essence, that's the question I wanted to answer is, how was this possible? And were these, able, were these poets able to convincingly achieve a kind of synthesis of this art form uh, with sort of this new perspective? Yeah. So. I mean, I've, I have questions and thoughts, but maybe for another time. Uh, yeah, I could go on literally at, at infinite lengths. Yeah, this. yeah. So. Well, let's let's close the loop then real quick. How, how did you end up at uh, and faculty at Boyce? So when I was doing my PhD work, I was on a, a historic campus up there in New <clears throat> England. And uh, already at that time, the dean of Boyce College, uh, who was then Dan DeWitt, uh, was routinely bringing Boyce students up to Boston to tour the city and kind of get to know it. And I mean, Boston is a really unique 
It's a unique place in the United States. It, it just doesn't feel exactly like any other city. It's a wonderful world city. I think you could use that designation. And so he wanted Boyce students to experience this as part of the Boyce Worldview Program. And he got in touch with my pastor, the pastor of my church that I attended there in Boston, who himself is a Southern grad. And uh, he actually comes down and visits campus, Bland Mason of City on a Hill Church up there. Mm. And uh, he's, he's a great New England church planter. And, and he knew me. And, and uh, when Dan DeWitt brought these boy students up, at one point he said, hey, do you know anybody who could give us a tour of Harvard's campus? And he asked my pastor, and, and Bland recommended me. And so I met Dan, and Dan and I hit it off, and I loved the students and their passion. And at that point, I hardly knew anything about I mean, I, I don't think I'd even really heard of Southern Seminary uh, much at all before that point. And so in the course of getting to know Dan and his students, I got to know Boyce and Southern and was just blown away and just thought, man, that is the kind of place mm. that I want to work. Mm. And then... <clears throat> Eventually, over time, it went from that's the kind of place I want to work to, no, that's just that's specifically the place where I want to work. And very fortunately, this is a great, huge blessing in my life. It's hard to overstate. As I was coming to the end of my PhD studies, which is an anxious time, because mm. the job market, I mean, this was a while ago, but even then the job market was terrible for people graduating with a PhD in in the humanities. There's a very few jobs and a ton of very talented competition. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of people spend a lot of disheartening, many disheartening years on the job market. Um, and it's just, it's a difficult, it's a whole difficult world. But I was spared having to go through all of that because it just so happened that Boyce had a humanities was looking, had a humanities opening, was looking to hire somebody onto the humanities program at just that time. And so um, Dan and the provost at the time happened to be up in New England, and, and we did a kind of impromptu interview, and I loved them, and, and they seemed to like me, and, and so we kind of put together a plan. I remember very vividly at one point they said, all right, you know, do, can you be done your dissertation by such and such a date? And at that point, I had like, I don't know, like one of five chapters done. <laughs> and, uh, you know, without hesitation, like any young, young person would do. I said, absolutely. Yeah. Of course I can finish by that date. Yeah. Afterwards thinking like, how am I going to, how am I going to cash this check that my mouth just, just wrote here? But the, the Lord was kind to me and I managed with a lot of help uh, from my wife. I was already, already married at that point <coughs> mm -hmm. from friends and, and church members who just helped me get over the finish line. Did a lot of work in a very short time. Uh, to get everything done, and then and then came to Boyce in uh, mm. it was at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. Okay, it is the it is the best job I've ever had. Yeah. I love it. I love it here. So yeah, I am I'm not as familiar with Boyce the the ins and outs obviously as I am Southern, mm -hmm. but being a Southern student, not a Boyce student, but um, there's a lot of bleed up and down, back and forth between the two. Yeah, and it's just I I can never get over how grateful I am for this place. Yeah. And like, it's a mutually enriching thing. You know, the presence of the college on campus, I think is really good for the seminary and of course, vice versa. Mm. So, and that's when students come here and they say, well, what is, what's different about Boyce compared to this or that other college? I mean, there's a lot of great Christian colleges about there. That's one of the things I can say is you've got 
a world-class seminary faculty here. You've got access to their lectures and, mm. and uh, you can get to know them and, and meet them and go to church with them even and hear their preaching. And you've got, well, what I think is uh, certainly a world-class college here at Boyce. You know, we're small, but we're mighty. And uh, we're extremely passionate about what we do. And so mm-hmm. th- th- those two things coming together to serve not only to be training up ministers, which of course is, is the primary purpose of the seminary, uh, but also training scholars in our, our PhD and, and other advanced programs at the seminary and training younger students at the college for all manner of different vocations. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I teach in what, what is what we call a marketplace degree which is kind of not exclusively aimed at full-time ministry, but people who graduate from our humanities program, they go on and they do all sorts of different jobs in the world. Right. Um, again, I think those, those different assets that we have are just mutually reinforcing, and it's a, it's a unique and special place to be. Yeah. So, I love it here. So most of this, this conversation is sort of, now going back to the topic, I suppose, yeah, came out of that lecture that you gave on reading. Mm-hmm. And I basically have a, a, a shotgun shell of who, what, where, when, why, how. Okay. And I suppose the, the, the best two should that to start with is the what and the why yeah. of reading. And so it's, it's a very dumb question, but yet a question that I think is so important at least was very important to me when I started seriously reading, is the why. Like, why should you read? And I think it's a question that I have maybe take, I take for granted, but was super crucial in, in my journey, I suppose. So I want to maybe bat that question to you first. As dumb as it is, why should you read? Oh, it's not at all a dumb question. I mean, it is the question for people uh, of an academic bent or literary bent or just people who, who have a greater than normal curiosity about the world. For me, this is a question I only learned to ask way downstream hmm. of learning to be an avid reader. I think it was, only, it was only fairly late in my life as a reader that I began to ask, why do I do this? What am I trying to accomplish? Like, what's the end game here? Because I was, I'm, I'm such a passionate person and I'm so curious about so many things. My appetite for books is, is so strong. It just, I don't think I even asked the question until, mm. until relatively recently in terms of life stages. And the way I like to frame this, I, so I don't think there's one easy, simple answer for this. I will say for me, I try to frame it in light of what Moses says in Psalm 90 teach us to number our days so that we can get a heart of wisdom. So it occurred to me, as it eventually does, even to young people, hey, my time on earth here is limited, you know, and I want to make really good use of it. I don't know how long it will be, but let's say I have a normal lifespan. I'm, I can only read so many books. What is the purpose at which, or what are the purposes at which my reading is aimed and of course, I ask the question that anybody asks when, when resources are limited, but aims are potentially infinite, how am I going to allocate my limited resources of time and attention? Mm-hmm. I've got to prioritize. It's essentially a kind of economic decision, right? But with, with spiritual implications. And I think it's important to come to the realization 
that the day of your death is going to find unopened volumes on your bedside table. We don't know how long we have, each one of us individually. All we can do is try to pursue reading projects that are looped in, that is, that are not floating free off by themselves, kind of devoid of larger purpose, but that are looped in on some level to the larger purpose of our lives. So I think to some extent asking, why do I read? Is just, a, is just a subspecies of the question, why do I do anything? Why do I choose to do anything? And for, for Christians who are committed to a biblical view of life, the answer is the same as for every other question, which is to glorify God hmm. and enjoy Him forever. That's the purpose of my life. That's the overarching purpose of every tiny thing I do down to brushing my teeth every night. You know, so... How does reading fit into that scheme? And that doesn't finish answering the question. You know, we could give it a kind of pat Christian answer and, 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 and say, oh, well, it's, it's to glorify God. Sure, but how does my reading actually glorify God? And again, I think the answer is complicated because, and, and this has helped me to, to sift through and categorize systematically the kinds of reading that I do because not all reading is the same sort of mm-hmm. activity. Reading a historical account is quite a different sort of occupation for your time and your mind and your heart than reading a compelling novel or a collection of poetry or a how-to manual on, on you know, how to run your fish pond. Um, these, are all, these are all formally speaking the same activity, but they differ greatly in terms of of how your, your mind and your heart are engaged. So for me, it was a key thing to recognize not all of my different ways of reading are aimed at the same purposes. Let me begin to try naming explicitly to myself, what am I aiming at when I pick up a book of poetry hmm. and meditate on this particular way that words are structured to... to illuminate a particular topic in metaphor and simile and, and images like what I sort of start at the end of the process and reverse engineer it and say, what, what is that doing to me? Mm. Why do I like it? And am I right to value it? Mm. And I suppose in some cases the answer might be no. Uh, you know, I think there are kinds of reading which maybe are hard to justify in moral terms, one way or the other, I you know I'm not going to give examples um, because I don't want to. I don't want to send anyone's conscience into kind of a, a tailspin of of needless anxiety here. Uh, I do try to look at the different ways that I read, the different kinds of things I read, and ask: Have I thought consciously about why I'm doing this? and about how it contributes to my pursuit of goodness and beauty and truth, and ultimately my pursuit of God himself, Mm. and the knowledge of God, particularly in Jesus, in the person of Jesus, who is goodness with a capital G, truth with a capital T, and beauty with a capital B, incarnate. That is who and what he is, right? And... For some kinds of literature, that's easier to answer than others. If I'm reading a theological treatise, right. it's not, I don't have to travel a great distance to, to answer that question. I want to learn about God, this book or this professor, this, this author is helping me understand the attributes of God or God's working in history. Bingo, done. 
mm-hmm. right? It, it is harder, I think, with, I mean, actually the, the fields in which I teach in history and in literature, it's, it's initially not as obvious, I think, to say, what is my reading of this, uh, this novel or this poem contribute to the things I care about most? And again, there's a lot of complexity here. So I could say, hey, you know, so, and I'll take a real example for my life. I, I try to make sure there's a regular part of my reading diet that's focused on family life. Okay. That has to do with learning, for me, learning how to be a good husband, a good godly husband, learning how to be a good godly, loving, caring father to my, my daughter, mm-hmm. uh, and, and thinking about what family is, biblically speaking, what a healthy family life looks like, all that stuff. I try to make sure there's always some element in my diet of that. I think of it, I actually think the, 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 the analogy of diet is pretty useful here. You know, we all need a range of certain kind of nutrients and minerals and things. And for me, that's one of them. I need to be stimulated to think consciously about my family life so that it doesn't just fall into natural habits that I haven't really examined. Because, yeah. you know, if you have a, a spouse or a child, you know, there's all kinds of natural habits you can fall into that are really not good in the long term for you mm-hmm. or for your family. So I look at that. But, but it's not so simple as, man, the only things that conduce to my being a good husband and father are books I read about being a husband and father. Right. It would be crazy to exclude the novels that I read, the poetry that I read, the theological treatises about God's attributes, whatever. All of those things in different ways are, there's no one part of ourselves that's just totally detached from all the rest. Our minds and our hearts are a unity, right? So... With each thing that I read and with the proportions in my diet of these different nutrients and minerals, I try to weigh and balance different priorities in the light of the fact that my time on earth is limited and strategy is a necessity. At the same time, I don't plan out every possible little detail of what I'm going to read. And I try consciously to leave room for God's providence in bringing things unexpectedly to my attention. Mm-hmm. And oh, I could tell you stories of so many wonderful life-changing things I've read that drifted across my desk like like on the breeze that mm-hmm. I wasn't looking for, didn't even know existed. And if I if I were too rigid in my thinking about no, you must only eat, you know, no, I've got I've gotten my 100% of my yearly intake yeah. of husband and father type books, so I'm not going to read any more of those or no, I've read a certain number of novels. Right. I'm going to ignore this category. I would miss those things. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think part of the reading life needs to be th- thinking clearly about why you're reading what you're reading, how it connects in each individual case to the larger priorities in your life uh, under God's authority and direction, the direction of his word. Uh, but also to recognize reading is one of the means by which God can bring new fragments and pieces of truth and beauty into our lives that we didn't, whose existence we didn't even suspect mm. hitherto. And, and to be open to that element of the unexpected, just as we are in, in, you know, in the way that you schedule your day or your week. Mm. Mm. If you, if I've learned this as a, as a young faculty member, I used to schedule out my whole day every day and say, you know, from 201 to 209, I'm going to be answering emails and I'm going to be doing this and doing that. And, you know, you, you can only live that way for two or three days before you realize 
hey, it's good to set general goals and to, ha- to build habits, but you need to make allocation for the fact that you don't control the universe. Mm. You're on the receiving end of, yeah. of most of what happens to you, right? So I, I try to think about my reading that way too, to say, I need to leave some space for the unexpected. And oh my goodness, that has made all the difference. Okay. So then a, a question I would have, um, think of, you know, maybe a younger person who's, who's getting into this. Maybe for me, I would think I was, I think I was probably 21 or 20 when I first really started thinking about this. Mm. Maybe it's for some people it's younger or older, whatever. And they're, they're kind of getting this inkling like, okay, I, I think I want to be more of a reader. What do you, or, or, or maybe it's an older person who's like not getting, because I talked, I've talked some really had some really cool conversations with some older guys at my church who, you know, it was in their mid thirties that they were like, hmm. they kind of grappled with this. What are some of the first steps in order to chart a bit of a, a trajectory for like laying that on your plate? Cause I, I actually, I actually really wonder if it's scary for some people to kind of like, where do you start? Like Bible safe, Bible safe. That's good. Right. Amen. Hallelujah. (laughs) But like, what do you read? Cause then you go like, am I about to get in invest in a book? That's that all of a sudden five smart people go, Oh, that's garbage. And then you go, you know, yeah. So what's a kind of initial first five steps? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of Christians have anxiety about trying to steer clear of, of the landmines or or things they might read that are going to be, unhelpful to them in one way or another. And I don't think that's a bad instinct. I mean, it, you know, the world is a spiritually dangerous place. We can't, we can't pretend it isn't for all of us. But I think it really depends on what you want to accomplish with your reading. You know, if we say, granted, okay, for, for a Christian reader, they want their reading to be looped in to their pursuit of God's glory. They want it to help and not to hinder their ability to love their neighbor well as themselves. But that still leaves open within that category an enormous like field of thousands and yeah, thousands. Yeah, all sorts of different subjects you could read about or different kinds of books. So I think part of what plays a role here is some of the similar questions that we ask to decide kind of how to pursue a vocation. You know, you can look at what you're good at, the sorts of things you, you understand more intuitively or more quickly than others. You can think about your passions. What are you really interested in? You know, I think sometimes people get the idea, and particularly this can be a problem for Christians, that, oh, if, if I enjoy reading this and it isn't really dull or obviously morally improving, it must be wrong for me to read it. Like it must be wrong for me to gratify my curiosity unless it's explicitly spiritual in some way. And again, I think that comes from a good place, which is we, we all want to please God and, and not to waste our time. But I think God, God has made each of us different and we're drawn to different aspects of his creation or different aspects of human culture or life. And he means for us to use those unique giftings and passions as our special offering to mm. him. That's part of offering up our lives to him is that the offering that arises out of my life is in some ways going to look different from complementary to, but different from the offering that arises mm. out of your life, so to speak, your life and, and behavior. So I think you need to ask, what am I really interested in? 
what, where do I already have kind of a head start in terms of my understanding and experience? And then also, what, what is going to reinforce and complement opportunities to be useful and a blessing to other people? Mm. So for me, I happen to be in the very blessed position that the stuff I like to learn about is also stuff that can be extremely useful and helpful to other people. So I can go ahead of them our younger brothers and sisters, let's say, and learn a bunch of stuff that I can then synthesize like a bee gathering flowers and making honey to feed and nourish them Mm. in their own vocations and their own walks. But I think even if your interests are more esoteric or, you know, let's say you're really interested in geology, just to Mm. pick a random topic, Knowledge of geology is useful for so many different kinds of human endeavor, right? Like mm. Geologists actually are very useful people. And that's a, that requires a tolerance for really technical detail and uh, taking in some, some huge facts about how the earth is, is built and structured and all these different things. And there's any number of ways that your interest in geology and in reading about rocks could could be turned to the service and blessing of other people mm. and at the same time glorify God as you embody and spread knowledge of how creation works, mm-hmm. you know? So I think really whatever the subject is, however it can be used, you can find a path in your reading. Now, maybe most people who are listening to this are, are more like you and me. You know, they're, they're, well, I guess I'm making some assumptions about you, but interested in history, interested in literature and mm. poetry and theology. And in those subject areas, a lot of people just feel overwhelmed by, by all that's out there. And I would say, I don't think people need to be as anxious as they are about, like there's a lot of fear of missing out. Mm. Like, oh man, I got to find something like the Harvard Classic series, or I've got to get a hold of a college syllabus so I can be certain that I'm reading all the same big works that everybody else is reading. And there's a desire to be part of what we often call the great conversation there. And this is a commendable desire. You want to be able to talk about Mm. big things with people and share your life with them. So if they've read Montaigne or Homer, you want to read Montaigne or Homer just, I mean, in order to to speak the same language, Mm -hmm. to have the same cultural background, to be able to to explore the world together. Um, And... That's, that's a good goal to pursue, but I think people are afraid like, oh man, what if I end up spending three months reading one of Tolstoy's novels that is, not, <laughs> that is not his most famous novel? I will have foolishly wasted my time. It's like, you don't need to, I don't think you need to be as concerned about that. If there was just one incontrovertibly perfect list of the most canonically important books that we could all agree on, we would all agree on it. But even people who are experts in these things differ in a lot of different ways. This is a question I have to tackle when I'm putting together my great book syllabi, you know, like according to what principles do I decide what goes in and what goes out? I do have specific objective principles for deciding that. But I I don't think you can go really wrong even just by asking, what's the title of a book and the name of an author whom I see constantly cited across multiple cultural domains all the time? Hmm. Homer's probably a great example of this. Uh, you You might pick something like 
I don't know, you might think about Greek tragedy, mm-hmm. Shakespeare, you know, for English language, for native English speakers, there's Shakespeare-isms scattered all throughout the language mm-hmm. we use every day. You hear people quoting Hamlet and you think, yeah, you know, at some point I should, should get around to experiencing that. Start there if you want to. Mm. If, I, if I asked you, make a list of the five books you constantly hear about that, that cause you a little twinge of envy... Every mm. time you, you hear yeah. somebody talking yeah. about it, yeah. you think, oh, I wish I had had the experience they had. Yeah. Start there. You know, if it's a book you're hearing about through, through multiple cultural channels in, a, in our contemporary life that often, it's very unlikely it's going to be a complete waste of mm. your time. Even if you don't like the book or admire everything about it, it inevitably is going to connect you with conversations and, and, and the mental world of other people that's going to be useful mm. to you for loving them, serving them, understanding them. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, Milton's Paradise Lost is continually building a back wall. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> right. And yeah. it's, and it's like, it's one of those books where it's like, eventually the dam will break and I'm going to have to pick it up because yeah. you, because it's Milton's Paradise Lost. Right. Yeah. So, um, that's when I, you know, have a, I'm one of many I haven't gotten around. Yeah, to, you should to start reading. that tonight. Yeah, uh, <laughs> my my students at Great Books too are actually beginning that for next okay. week. So your okay. ti- your timing's auspicious. Are they going to read the whole his whole work? They're going to read the whole poem. Well, let's yeah, go. Yeah, and uh, it's a challenge for them. We read it over two weeks, but I tell them when I'm introducing it, you know, you're not going to be disappointed. Mm. You're not going to regret this, and none of them ever do. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, I mean, start there. You know, if you're listening to this and you think, man, I don't know what to read, start with Paradise Lost. Really? If you've read Paradise Lost, go read Dante. Read the Divine Comedy. If you've read Dante, go read Virgil's Aeneid. If you've read Virgil's Aeneid, read a bunch of Greek tragedies. If you've read a bunch of Greek tragedies, go read some of Shakespeare's comedies and then watch performed productions of them. I could could go on bouncing around our vast tradition, right? But I I don't think you're going to go far wrong just feeling your way like that. And I think one of the things... I would want to say to people, because so I'm a literature professor, so I get this question all the time. Mm. And in some ways, it's a question I love to answer. In other ways, it's a question I dread when people say, what should I read? Or, hey, I've got you know a 13-year-old kid who's just discovered books. Lay out right. an authoritative canon of Western literature for me. And I just sort of like, you don't know what it is that you're asking. Yeah, it's a yeah, way yeah, more yeah. complicated task than, than what you think. Yeah. But also, I want to encourage people and liberate them a bit by saying, you can find your own way through it, okay? So you haven't read Paradise Lost. Nope. I'll give you an example from my life that maybe, maybe I should be embarrassed about. I've learned not to feel embarrassed about these things. But people do feel embarrassed when they say, what haven't you read? I say, well, I hadn't read To Kill a Mockingbird until this past summer, okay. which was funny to a lot of people who knew me, not only because I'm a literature professor, but because... And maybe I can blame this on Canada. I don't know. Like every American high school student has read this book. Right. Like right. millions of times. Right. Or seen the movie or both. You know, uh, what's his name? Gregory Peck. Uh, I'd never read it. It was one of those books where I'm like, every time I hear about this, I feel a twinge of like, oh, I want to know what everybody is on to with this. And so I finally read it this summer. I loved it, but I'm, for all the same reasons that everybody else loves it, mm-hmm. you know, like, and that's one of the virtues of having this experience is you see, you get to, you get to share in an experience that other people have already been through yeah. that gives them something beautiful. It gives you something to talk about and to share together. You know, C.S. Lewis says, you can't really fully enjoy something until you praise it. Mm. 
in the presence mm-hmm. of others. That kind of completes the process of enjoyment. Yeah. And reading the great books g- gives you that. But I read this essay recently by uh, a famous literary scholar who, who's, you know, you would think would be the best read person in the world. And he said, listen, shame over big, important books that you haven't read yet is a waste of energy. Yeah. Every single person, including tenured faculty whose whole life assignment is just to sit around reading great literature all the time and teaching about it. Everybody has gaps and omissions in their list mm-hmm. because no one lifetime Can, is yeah, sufficient, yeah. so rich and varied is our tradition to cover everything. Yeah. So don't bother wasting any time feeling ashamed. There's books I could mention that I haven't finished that you would say, well, that, that should make him blush. You know, <laughs> you should feel embarrassed yeah. about that. And, and yeah, you know, if you're teaching students Paradise Lost, yeah, you should have read Paradise Lost. And, and I would feel guilty if I presumed to stand up and teach about it and I had no experience of it. Mm-hmm. But that would just be professional malpractice. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you're just a regular person who's not teaching or, or not, not studying these things professionally, it doesn't matter from which end you start. Start with Shakespeare. Start at the beginning with Homer and the Western tradition. Start somewhere in the middle. Right. You know, read, read the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer. Man, that is a that is <laughs> that is an entertaining book, even mm-hmm. after uh, so many centuries. You know, start in the middle, start at the end. I'm constantly roving back and forth mm-hmm. all over the tradition, and I'm not going to exhaust it by the time that I die. So I would tell people, stop worrying so much. Just pick something and go. Mm. And when you're done that, pick the next thing and go. And I'm not saying don't think about the quality of what you're reading, but I'm saying if these are works that are kind of in the mainstream of the Western tradition that you hear about a lot, just go for it. Sure, sure. And, and, and don't, don't feel like you need to wring your hands so much. Okay, you know? okay. Um, I'm going to... I want to push back slightly, and you tell me if, yeah. I'm, wrong, if I'm wrong. I'll, I'll take an area that I'm a little bit more comfortable with, which would be like Russian literature. You know, Great. Kind of your, your, your classic. Guys. Love it. Tolstoy. Yeah. Um, Dostoevsky, the, the boys. I, if someone, I it's deeply, I think it's deeply important to read some of the Russian literature of the last Agreed. couple hundred years. Agreed. But I, I think of the handful of people I know at church or the just the people who aren't in the, the nerd camp like me. Sure. And I'd be like, if I was, I think it would be important for your first go around to probably not go the war and peace route <laughs> and probably not brothers... <laughs> Brothers K, yeah, but I think probably crime and punishment. Don't, don't start with demons, right? Either. Don't start with demons. Just, oh but my gosh! I, I tell me if you agree with yeah. this more narrowly. I think crime and punishment is probably your one of your best safe bets. Yeah, as it's a matter, a, that's it's a where linear, I started. It's a linear storyline. Yeah, we're Skolnikov. You got one guy you're following. Less crazy names. It's not going to take you eight years it's to not, read. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I my kind of worry would be for for someone who's kind of to get in there is if you if you go grab anything you might accidentally grab one of the more challenging works and then go okay clearly the whole landscape is for smart people only cuz i missed the boat on this where i'd be like oh no if you, if you got a, you're under your belt a few of the more accessible ones you realize you actually can do brothers yeah. k or whatever yeah, you know I what mean, i'm saying you know i think so I'll push back on your pushback. And so that, go. that's a great question. And I'm sure many people would wonder that who are listening to this conversation. I think I would, I would kind of reassure you and say the damage that you can do to your reading life by encountering something too complex for you too soon, 
I think is actually fairly minimal. Okay. And I, I, I can say that because I've had that experience numerous times. Mm-hmm. I remember reading a book in high school and I had a great insightful teacher and I said, I don't get this. Everybody talks about it. And he looked at me and he said, hey, finish reading it now by all means. You just need to understand this is a book you have to come back to in 15 years. Because yeah. you're 16 years old right now, and you don't know anything about life <laughs> uh, that's going to help you understand what this book is about. Get an experience of it now so you're, you, you know the landscape maybe, but come back to it when mm. you're 30. You know, And that was excellent advice. Mm. I tell my students all the time, for instance, with Dante, <laughs> I picked up Dante for the first time, had no real interest in understanding the man or his times yeah. or, or his way of thinking had not done any any preparatory I really had no idea what the divine comedy was was about or how it functioned read the first few cantos of it literally threw it across my room in disgust <laughs> didn't pick it up again for a long time and this is funny to me cuz I teach it now every semester <laughs> you know like on a regular basis I love it it's become a whole part of my <laughs> a whole part of my life on so many levels. But the first time I encountered it, I wasn't ready for it. Mm. I was also, I was full of foolish presumption. You know, I didn't, I thought, now I'm not saying it's wrong to jump into a book without preparation. You don't need to prepare to read a book necessarily. But one thing you do need in your initial equipment, and this is what I teach my students, is a willingness to shut up about your own concerns and interests and what you want out of a book and be ready to receive sympathetically, not, note well, not uncritically, but from an initial posture of sympathy and respect, Mm -hmm. that should be your your most important preparation for encountering a new book. You should be ready to be patient. You should be ready to push through a lack of understanding or some confusion, Mm -hmm. and to give a particular author time in his or her own way and style to tell you what he wants to tell you in the context of the work of art that he's created. And that's a discipline that I often compare with my students to the way that we approach other people. Hmm. If you approach another person, you know, our college students are meeting new students all the time. I say, if you meet some new student in the cafeteria, you have a 10 minute conversation with them and you decide, wow, you know, he said something incredibly rude and insensitive because he doesn't know that I'm going through X struggle in my life. This person's obviously a jerk, and I want nothing to do with him. We know what to call that, right? You're being a judgmental fool. Mm. You're, not, you're not learning another person on their own terms. You're not showing them patience and kindness. You're not showing them any of the patience and kindness that you would want shown to yourself. So the way that we're taught by the scriptures to love our neighbors, I think is the way that we should encounter books. This idea, by the way, is not original to me. You can call it ethical Mm. reading Mm. if you want. That's what we call it at Boyce. Treat a new book the way you treat a new person. Yeah, that's good. Are we never to pass judgments on the behavior of other people? No, of course not. There are people you should avoid in life, right? And there are books you should avoid and reject. But you're not going to be basing that decision on knowledge and patient investigation if you reject a book uh, as quickly as I did Dante. You've mm. got to be mm. ready to listen to what they've got to say on their own terms in order to earn the right to make an evaluation mm-hmm. of their quality. Mm-hmm. You don't have the right to make an evaluation of their quality until you've read them, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah. So here's a question. Um, I'm not quite sure how to, 
how to phrase it as a question per se, but it's a relationship between uh, competence or confidence in ideas and how much you've read or researched on it. And mm. and th- that 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 question exists in many different domains. Mm-hmm. And and I it's something that I wrestle with a lot because so I, I have a maxim that people have heard on this this podcast many times that I I resolve to never have a serious opinion on anything that I haven't read at least one book. <laughs> and it served me pretty well. So I just learned, hey, how about shut up about economics? Until you've read an economics textbook, shut up about this and this. So and it's been really, it's been a good guiding principle. And then, you know, I guess I, I, I always wonder, like, how, when can you say, I've arrived at, at a reasonable opinion on this or that? in accordance with how much you've read. And we're pulling a little out of the literature space and a little bit more into other types of reading. But I, do you have any principles that have kind of oriented you with that kind of conversation? Yeah, I, I mean, the problem is there's no objective measure to say, hmm. no. now that I've read three books about the history of the Communist Party in China, I'm qualified to make pronouncements on on the mind of Pre- President Xi, right? Like, that, yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe not, or maybe so, you know, I... It, it's hard to know, to judge your own mind and say, yes, now I have enough of a modicum of knowledge about this to to speak my mind. I mean, I I think your practice is a good one because we live in an age where there's all these external inducements to shooting from the hip with opinions about stuff that's none of our business that we know nothing about. And I'm not going to mention social media or Twitter or name any companies or outlets like that as being just kind of wholesale corruptors of our moral and national life. I'm not going to do that. But I do think it would be wise for all of us to get in the habit of, I mean, I'm concluding myself in this. I'm not holding myself Mm. up as an example here because I say say dumb things all the time. But... um, I think your rule is a good one. I, I, would, I would commend to people this approach. I sometimes think of my reading sort of in, in depth tracks. Hmm. And I should find a better term than that. But what I mean is... Depth tracks. No, not death tracks. Depth. There's a P in there. <laughs> there yeah. Yeah. Depth, depth tracks. Uh, I, I think about my reading where I, I sort of think I'm kind of building on a foundation in a few different areas. Hmm. So if I'm reading on a classical historical topic, I'm building on a very large foundation and lots of superstructure, right? Because I've spent tons of years investing in that particular area of knowledge. So if you were but, to pick up another book by a contemporary of Virgil, you're just, you're already, your superstructure is around that. Yeah, be I, like, I'm right. well prepared to be a sensitive, intelligent reader of that kind of book because right. I've got a lot of the necessary background, right. right? But I'll give you an example. So I'm really interested in ants. Let's like go. A- A-N-T-S. Okay, not but the relative just, kind. No, because no. that would be an also interesting. No, I'm, I mean I'm also in, interested in those kinds of ants, but uh, but um, maybe less so. Okay, yeah. Ants. So ants, the creature. Yep. And what do I know about ants? Literally, only what I have observed on the ground, right? Uh, and so, where do I start? Well, I start. I don't. You know, I I tried this. I went. There's an ant encyclopedia. I don't know if you knew this, but there's okay. there's like the ant book. I can't remember the title of it, but there's an ant book you can get that has like, you would use this, you would have this in your library if you were an entomologist, okay. right? Like every species, yeah. all these lo- long <clears throat> articles about how to ants do this or that. I got that out from the library, mm-hmm. quickly realized I had made a mistake. I just lack the scientific foundation to make sense of most of what I read. Okay. 
So instead, okay, I'm going to start with a popular level scientific book about the world of ants. This is great guy. Uh, what is his name? I think E.O. Wilson is his name, who's like an ant, okay. ant okay. man. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, like yeah. the most yeah. famous ant man in, in American science. And he's written some popular level books about ants and how they function and stuff. So, okay, I'm going to start there. Now, if I read a bunch of books about ants, down the line, when I decide, okay, the cycle of my interests has turned back to ants, I'm going to pick up where I left off at that point of depth. I already know a lot about ants. I'm going to go deeper along that track. Mm -hmm. But maybe I decide, hey, you know, I'm really interested in geology just because I go hiking in the hills of Kentucky, let's say. I want to know more about these crazy rock formations I see. Again, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to buy like a super technical textbook. Let me find a basic starting, something like, you know, like one of those Oxford very short introductions. Oh, those are so Very good. short introduction to geology or to trees or yeah. to nuclear weapons or whatever I'm interested in. And I start there and mm. I say, all right, I'm a novice on this. I don't know anything. Let me get the first principles down. And so I start building up those tracks. And I would commend to people, read widely in that sense. Mm. Like begin with beginner materials in a bunch of different topics. Yeah. In some ways, academia discourages this because the academic system is set up <clears throat> to encourage us to specialize super right. deep, super quickly. And that has its own reasons, right? But I, I would encourage people to counteract that, that tendency and say, yeah, I want to know a little bit about a lot of things because it's a complicated world that we live in. And I think there's kind of two antidotes for shooting your mouth off about stuff that you're actually clueless about, which is number one, speak with humility, you know, say a lot. I think I, I'm guessing based on the little that I know, or it seems to me that this is the case and also seek out people who, for whom your area of beginner reading is actually their area of special knowledge. Mm. And there are people like this all around us. You know, I like even, even, you know, I'm trying to think of, we had, um, we had a plumbing issue in my house recently. And whenever I meet an expert on anything, like I just, I just want to learn, I want to learn the things that they know. And mm. I had this great conversation uh, with this master plumber just about all kinds of esoteric plumbing stuff like and learned about like hey why was this particular pipe introduced at this time once we realized oh it lasts a lot longer and it's a lot cheaper to make and mm. the material doesn't buckle and like you can learn so much from the people all around you in daily life mm. seize those opportunities it also helps that people like to talk about themselves so you can have a great conversation at a party where you just ask somebody questions about stuff they know about everybody knows about something and they'll walk away thinking you were really fun to talk to, ironically. even All you've done is talk about yeah. them. <laughs> but people like that, right? We all like that because we're vain. And, uh, and learn from them and make that part of your stock and say, yeah. and say, I'm open to correction from somebody who knows more about this. I read these few books about economic theory. So this event in the news seems to me in a certain way that, that I should have this opinion. <laughs> But I'm willing to hear from somebody who spent a lot more time thinking about it hmm. and to try and, and judge what they have to say by the, the light that I have. Hmm. So humility, I think willingness to be corrected and just like, like you are already practicing a reluctance to speak super categorically <laughs> on subjects on which you know you're ignorant, you know? Yeah. And so. I think the practice of reading uh, widely will help you realize how much you don't know about so many different things, right? Yeah. Like the more, I, I've really not taken a deep dive into political 
any political reading really at all. Mm. But so much of what I've read has surrounded that, that I'm just getting a bigger and bigger and bigger category of how much I don't actually know oh, about yes. politics. And um, all of us are in that boat with one thing or another, mm. you know, and I, yeah, I think it's, it's good just to practice the phrase that I heard you say, which mm. is practice saying to people in real life situations, you know, I don't feel like I know enough about this to express an opinion, an an informed opinion. Like just the practice of teaching yourself to say that publicly is probably very healthy for all of us because it is tempting when someone else has an opinion, you want to meet their level of intensity and say, oh, my friend's really interested in this. He feels strongly about it. I want to agree with him or disagree with him just out of a sense of community or fellowship. Mm. But I think it's good to resist that sometimes and say, wow, that's really interesting. I've learned a lot from you about that. Honestly, I don't feel like I know enough about it yet Mm. to have Mm. a strong feeling about it. Because all of us are having to make judgments and form opinions all the time in the absence of perfect knowledge, right? It's just part of the human condition. So being more honest about that. But I mean, it's hard, right? Because we don't... We don't want to look dumb. We don't want to look ill-informed. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to learn to be okay with, with people thinking badly of you if you're going to train yourself to say, I actually haven't read that book. Yeah. I actually don't know anything about the history of Ukraine or whatever comes up. Dude, know, that's a big which one. most of us don't. It's a big right? one, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, again, not to make this too... Like, I mean, I think that's a very good example of it where it's like, I, I know nothing about the geopolitical tensions between Russia and Ukraine over the last hundred years. Zip. So my my position on things should be very, very quiet and very, very open-eared, you know what I mean? Or at least, you know, I, I think it's okay to say, hey, based on what I have seen and mm, heard, right. I'm inclined to think this, but, uh, you know, I'm always willing to learn more because we do have to, you know, our, the congressman who represent us and the senators in this country theoretically act in part based on the will of their constituents. Right. So to some extent as, as citizens in a democratic Republic, we're responsible for knowing something about what's going on sure. in order to direct our public officials towards particular policies that we think are good. Yeah. Right. So, so we do have to sometimes form a, opinions quickly and try to learn fast, mm. which can be uncomfortable for us. Um, and you could go too far with the skepticism. Sure. You know, you, yeah. you could get to the place where you say that about everything. Like, yeah. hey, sometimes you have to make a, you have to make a call yeah. on a particular situation, yeah. you know? Yeah, some, something I did, um, <clears throat> something I did in, in, you know, 2020, summer of 2020 with all the, the racial tension that was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I picked up uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s biography, mm-hmm. uh, Malcolm X's biography, uh-huh. um, Reading Well Black by Issa McCauley, which is a, a different different category, but still right. loosely. And I just started picking up some of the kind of key works that I could find on from biographies from from different black leaders in the civil rights era, some books on history and stuff. And just started over that summer, just read a bunch on it. Uh, continued to not have too many opinions, mm-hmm. but it just helped me gave a little bit of lenses and context and stuff like that. And then it, I still want to be very, very careful of having opinions on that because it's very controversial stuff. But now I can, I think I can engage in conversations after putting six or seven books under my belt. You yeah. know what I mean? And then, and, and the nice thing is, is the more I read on that particular issue, uh, the more confident I get in a couple areas, but the more careful I am in about 16 different other areas because you start right. going easy, you know, there's, well, there's, there's, yeah, that's complicated, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, and you, I think you get a sense, li- like you're describing, when you, when you dip it deeply into a topic deliberately, you get to a point where you realize, you know what, I've probably spent more time thinking about this now maybe than most of the people around me. And that, that's, da- that's a dangerous realization because it can very quickly lead to pride and arrogance. Mm. Like, I just know more about this. Obviously, my opinion's right and yours is wrong because I read four books about it or, right. or, or whatever. And that, that can be very deceiving and, and, of course, an easy trap to fall into. But I do think... I do think it's okay to raise the bar for one another and say, hey, you know, we're talking a lot about Ukraine in the news right now. Mm. Let's learn collectively more about these things mm. so that when we discuss them, we can feel more confident in our opinions. And not everybody needs to read three or four books about it, of course. But I think individually we can set examples in our spheres of saying, yeah. In so far as we have time, and you know, some listeners are probably like, "Listen, I work full time. I've, <laughs> yeah. I've got eight kids. How do I have time to read books about Ukraine, yeah. Ukrainian history? Maybe you don't, right? Yeah. And uh, we've got different priorities that we need to pay attention to. But um, I think it's good to set the bar high in our circles for saying, "I want to be the kind of person who strives to have well-informed opinions mm-hmm. and to listen to different voices uh, from different sides of debates." before making my own decision um, and still be open to the possibility that somebody who's read zero books about this issue, when I've Mm. read four or five, might actually still have more insight into it in a conversation Mm -hmm. than I do. Mm -hmm. That's the kicker, right? Is, is facts don't always lead to more facts. Don't always lead to more wisdom. This is true. Um, So being open to correction from people who are more expert in the subject, than you are is good, mm-hmm. but so is being open to correction from people who might see the forest that you've lost by looking at the trees. Mm. You know, sometimes people have good moral intuitions about things they might not be experts about. So I, I try to remind myself, you can kind of over-educate yourself into folly also. Absolutely. You, you, can, you can read and think so deeply that you get completely disoriented and turned around, and it sometimes takes somebody saying the obvious to kind of smack you upside the head a little bit mm. and bring you back to reality. You know, I've, mm. I've had that experience many times in my life as well. Mm. Okay. One last kind of area I'd love to, to talk about before we, before we wrap this up is just really practically, um, what are sort of the nuts and bolts of how you read? Like, do you, have you had any rhythms in place, um, to allow you to chug at a good speed, uh, through your books do you like, how do you pick the books you, you read? Just like, like, Hey, here's a couple, here's top three tips that I've gotten that have really helped me as, as tackling this project of, of, for what, what reading is worth. Yeah. Well, ironically, I'm writing a book about this. No. <laughs> so I, uh, which maybe no one will read. Okay. That would be really ironic, but I think there's a lot to say on this. I mean, I could single out a few things. So one is I try to read, I try to read books that are important to me that I want to remember, at least in, in key parts or details, with a pencil in my hand. Okay. I buy inexpensive paperbacks for this reason. I also buy a lot of books used. I don't invest mm-hmm. a lot in the physical quality of my books precisely so that I can feel okay using them mm-hmm. up. Not mm-hmm. just using them, but using them up. Filling them with notes, but basically making them uh, unusable by other people. <laughs> and that's just, I mean, maybe it's a bit wasteful, but we, we live in a world where there's, you know, there's 10 million copies of the Odyssey being printed every day. You can go ahead and mark yours up. It's not a sacred text. 
Uh, it, it will help you remember and absorb and think about what you're reading. So books that, that I'm approaching with a more serious and long-term purpose, I will mark up. I don't mark up every book I read, and that's partly because some books are mainly for mm. relaxing or diverting my thoughts or um, the knowledge they contain. It's not knowledge primarily or, or things that I need to remember that I'm reading them for. It's more the experience in the moment of reading them. Uh, so I like to read Westerns, for example, yeah. for a number of different reasons, and I won't get into it. I think reading Westerns can be justified on good grounds. I'll just say that. But I like to read Western novels of, of high caliber, I would say. Maybe that's an ironic phrase to use. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, good, yeah, yeah, good yeah, quality, yeah. good literary quality Westerns. And those aren't books that I read with a pencil in my hand, because in general, they're not the sort of books that I'm going to be you know, scribbling down quotations from, mm. or I'm not going to learn some fact about the Rocky Mountains that I want to remember. That's not what those books are for, right? They're, they're aimed at another purpose. But uh, I'm an academic, so a lot of the books I read are books that are aimed at permanent incorporation into my brain. And active reading is the best way to make that happen, mm -hmm. right? Notes, questions in the margin. You can even develop your own system of annotation. Engineering-minded people among you will, will enjoy this. I made up my own system of annotation with symbols that are unique to me, mm -hmm. that have a unique meaning to me. And I mark them, mark them in my books as a kind of shorthand so I can flip back through and say, ah, I thought this was significant in this particular way or whatever. Yeah. Um, Audiobooks. I, I mean, I would commend this to your audience. So some people are very down on audiobooks or they're very skeptical about those it. people will be known as wrong. Yeah, I don't really understand where <laughs> I don't really understand where the hostility is coming from. Oh. But I will tell you, once I started uh, harnessing the power of audiobooks, I doubled my quantity of reading in a year. Yeah. I don't keep track of the number of books I read because I think that's sort of silly. I think the only reason I'm gonna this is an area where, in all humility, I'm gonna push back. Yeah, I, I, know, I won't I actually. About this we won't actually, but yeah, yeah. I I keep track of the pages that I've read, the okay, number I, of pages see, that I've we read. We started doing that. Really, that's, that's a, an okay. addition. I'll show you my spreadsheet after. That's oh, an addition that excellent. John Michael and I and our, our crew. We built out these these big old uh, spreadsheets. Oh, wonderful! I and, as you know, I love using yep. spreadsheets for this, not for actual math, but for keeping track of stuff like this. So, um, and I'll come back to that. Keep, keeping track of what you read, <laughs> I think, is a big thing too. But audiobooks, yeah, I doubled the number of pages. Mm -hmm. I guess we have to put air quotes around pages because it's a different medium. Doubled my reading in a year, and that was hugely significant for me because even if only a portion of that reading, I think mm -hmm. people who oppose the use of audiobooks might say, oh, well, you're not paying attention as closely. I would push back on that. I think I actually, this could just be me, but I, I often remember what I have listened to actually a little bit better than what I've read with my eyes. Yep. I think the reason is the same reason why the memory palace works for some people. Yep. When I'm listening to books and doing other things or driving or riding around on my lawnmower in my backyard, the experience of the book inevitably gets tied automatically to certain images or places in my mind. Mm -hmm. And that association makes that stuff easier to recall later. Mm -hmm. I've observed that effect in my own life. I only mainly listen to historical or fictional narrative uh, works mm -hmm. on audiobook form. I tried, I, this is my story I tell students. I tried listening to Sun Tzu's Art of War one time as an audiobook. Yeah, yeah. And I'm listening to it while I'm driving. And I come up to a light and some Yahoo goes through the light and I'm distracted for a second. And then Sun Tzu says, and those were the five key principles of victory. And I'm just like, oh no, what were the, <laughs> re rewind, rewind, rewind. Yeah, yeah. I missed the five key principles of victory. So like really abstract or conceptual books, 
are not good for me to mm-hmm. listen on audiobook. Mm-hmm. History and novels, though, where, okay, if I miss a line because I'm distracted, it's not a big deal, right? Yeah. Those are great for me to listen to. So audiobooks, I'd also say, as you've already mentioned, recording what you read, Ugh. not for the purpose of boasting or comparing with other people. Like, I don't, I've, as a rule, <clears throat> I don't ever tell another living soul, I don't think I've ever even told my wife how many pages I've read in a particular year. Because the temptation to pride would, would, would be bad for me. I just keep track of it because it's me versus me. Mm-hmm. I just want to mm-hmm. see how I can increase my total. But even then, you know, quantity and qual- quality don't always go together. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that's the only thing you need to think about. But keep a, keep a record of what you read and any associated information, even writing comments or little three-line reviews of the books that you read is a helpful practice. Um, so that you can look back at what you've done, but also so you can motivate yourself with confidence. You know, the first time in your life, maybe this has never happened for, for some of you listening, the first time in your life you, you finish an 800-page book mm. or even a multi-volume work, mm. you just have this awesome euphoric sense of accomplishment of like, man, if I can do that, what do I need to be scared of? Yeah, you know, yeah. what book needs to make me tremble if I can knock out, you know, history of the decline and fall of the Roman empire in six volumes. Yeah. You know, once you get to the end of that, it's like, all right, I, I can do this. You know, I can, I can read war and peace. War and peace is a walk in the park. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, so you build up confidence doing that, but also I subscribe to the very basic human wisdom of when it comes to habits. Now, you know, there are other things that work our, our heart, our spirit and so forth. It's not this simple, but as a very general, simple rule, I think you are more likely to improve what you measure. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can you can see objectively, I accomplished this much or failed to accomplish that much. So I need to think about what am I going to change to try and increase this particular habit, you know? Yeah. And again, there's other factors that are involved in that. It's not just all willpower, but measuring really helps me yeah. keep track of what I'm doing. It makes me I'll, I'll tell you this. I started doing this with films recently. I now keep track of every movie I watch huh. and I give it a rating, you know, like Siskel and Ebert. Yeah. And I write a little comment. I have a spreadsheet for this as well. Yeah, yeah. And you know what I've discovered? I watch fewer movies. Mm. I watch better movies because I don't want to have to write an entry about a movie that I clearly should have known was stupid. Yeah. Bef- yeah a waste yeah. of time before I watched it. And I think longer and better about that form of culture that I'm consuming Mm. just because I'm writing a couple scrappy notes about it when Mm -hmm. I put it in a spreadsheet. No one ever cares. I'm not going to win some kind of prize for watching certain number of movies in a year or or whatever. I'm not a cinephile or anything like that, but just that act of recording and being kind of intentional about tracking what I'm doing in that area has already made that experience richer, better, higher Mm. quality, and it's made me it's made me more conscious and more careful, I think, mm. about not wasting my time on stuff that isn't it doesn't further one of my aims in mm. life. You know? I think the recording too is so helpful for uh, the momentum side of things because mm-hmm. if you go recording and you start to get the rhythm, you go, okay, let's see, I really do have to read thirty pages a day yeah. in order to meet that kind of goal I'm setting. Right, and then you say, hey, we're gonna knuckle down, we're gonna do this thirty pages a day lets you build the momentum of keep click, clocking through the book and not like have a book on your bookshelf that you feel guilty at every single time you get up because right. it's been three weeks. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And guilt, you know, guilt is something I struggle with about reading because I'm an academic. I, you know, I own a lot of books. There's a lot of books on my list. 
And I never end up doing the amount of reading I think I can do. Yeah. Part of this is ironically, given my profession, I'm actually a really slow reader. Okay. So I try to, I tell this to students to comfort them because some of them are slow readers too. And there, you know, there's ways of working around this, but, um, I have mainly found that, um, I need to be led by a more powerful motive than guilt to mm. appreciate and finish and, and slog through an important book. I'm not saying guilt is guilt is a is a bad emotion in itself. I don't subscribe to that view. I think guilt has healthy and, and good purposes in our lives. But when I'm undertaking something that I don't have to undertake, it's not a moral obligation for me to read hmm. To Kill a Mockingbird uh, in the same sense that it might be a moral obligation for me to read something else. Um, I think, hey, you know what? I was going to tackle that this season. Didn't get around to it. Other things intervened. Yeah. Let's review. Is it really worth me devoting time to this or was it just a passing impulse? If it is worth devoting time to, maybe the error I made the first time around was I made the goal, but not the plan. Mm. I said, oh, I want to read this, but I didn't sit down and think, you know, to use Jesus's analogy, I didn't think, do I actually have enough stone to build this tower? Mm. Do I actually have enough time this semester to read this book? If not, you know, it's not surprising mm-hmm. that I failed to, mm-hmm. to get through it. So I try to just kind of not spend a lot of time dwelling on, oh, I feel bad that I didn't accomplish this thing I was mm-hmm. going to read. Mm-hmm. And I've been increasingly willing to say, you know, often my goals are actually pretty silly and unrealistic. I need to, right. uh, I don't want to tell people like aim lower, <laughs> but yeah. for me, sometimes I need to say aim lower mm. because if you're continually aiming ludicrously too high, you're going to be grumpy and miserable because you're constantly going to be falling short of your own unrealistic goals. So figure out what you can actually realistically do and start there and don't just make the goal, make the plan to achieve the Mm. goal. You know, I've also, I've talked to some friends too, who we've been encouraging each other. Like think about the kind of well-read person you want to be a decade from now Mm. and reverse engineer. I'm not going to get through the Western canon first ever. Second of all, much of it, in the next few years. Yeah. But if I go, what does 36 year old Jacob want to be? Yeah. And then go, well, let's just see 50 high quality canon, like the, you know, the, the, uh-huh. the great conversation books would be really great. Okay. 50. How many is that a year? That's five a right. year. I can, I can do five a year. Yeah. We do five a year. And then suddenly you get to 50 and you go, well, I've actually checked off a lot of those boxes like at 36. Yeah. Nice. That just takes a lot of the stress out of, at least for me, someone who's, you know, I have a firm convinc- I have a firm, deep, settled conviction that I'm a moron. And one of the <laughs> one of the small ways I can rectify that is by reading some great works. And then I can go, all right, cool, yeah. let's go. And then you and, chug and, away and at also, them. And also, if what you're, I have to tell this to my students, and it's comical because it's, it sounds like I'm talking down to them. But I have to say it to myself too. If what you're if what you're doing isn't working. Do something different. <laughs> yeah. We all have this tendency just to get locked into banging our heads against the wall, trying this thing that we thought was going to work and it doesn't work. So if you try to do your reading at night and you get you get to bed at 11.30 p.m. or whenever you get to bed and every single night the same thing happens, which is you read four sentences and you fall asleep because you're working all day and you're tired. Guess what? You're not going to achieve your reading goals if you have ambitious reading goals because you're doing it wrong, but you're wedded to this idea, oh, it's nighttime, the house is quiet, I've got time to myself, it should be the perfect time to read, but you're not seeing that actually the evidence points the other way. Mm. Do it during your lunch break, 
Mm. Get up half an hour earlier. Do it before you brush your, you know, I don't, I don't know. Whatever you like, try something radically different. Peg it to a different habit. Also, this is another strategy. I'm not coming up have with this. You, have you read uh, Atomic Habits? No, That's so one you're the second yeah. person to reference that yeah. book to me today. Well, I obviously should a, read it. They have a big thing of um, of tying habits to habits. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So I just discovered this like an idiot through <laughs> trial and error that like if I've already got good existing habits, I can just piggyback new habits on them and kind of use their momentum. Yep. So uh, do something. If you're not achieving your reading goals, do something radically different and see if it breaks the deadlock. Because we just have these blind spots. And actually, speaking of reading at night, this is often, I often think, oh, yeah, by the time I get to bed, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to, there's this, there's this thing I want to read. And I'm just going to, yeah, I'll probably get like 60 pages in. And I get through three sentences because I haven't taken into account the fact that I'm exhausted. Yeah. yeah and I fall yeah, asleep yeah. and I wonder why I'm not getting through the book with any progress, yeah. right? So you got to get creative. You got to think more like a guerrilla fighter. You know, guerrilla fighters, they use whatever opportunity they can, whenever they can, and they go for the little victories first. Mm -hmm. And that's how you got to think if you're going to be a guerrilla reader. Even even putting stuff on your phone, you know, smartphones are, smartphones are a double-edged sword, but um, there are lots of moments during my day where I'm waiting in line for something or I got to be doing something and I, I snatch a couple pages of reading on something I'm, I'm working on. Mm. I should add with that, you know, I don't think it's wise to fill up every tiny moment in your life with, with productive activity. Yeah. I think it, we don't want to be stupid and forget what all of our ancestors have known, which is it's also in the moments you're waiting in line or mowing your lawn and not doing anything else mm. that some of your most important thinking happens mm -hmm. when your mind is allowed to wander mm -hmm. a little bit. You know, So we don't want to fill all of those moments up, but mm. I do fill some of them up with a little bit of guerrilla reading and I, yeah. I get through more that I want to get through. Yeah. So. I think, and then I think also that's, that's a uh, kind of a key into what you were saying about being strategic. I s very strategically place pure enjoyment fiction in my reading schedule huh. so that yeah. when I sit down, like right, right tonight, the end of tonight, I'm going to sit down with Murtag, Murtag, whatever, how you pronounce it, the last of the Aragon series okay. that is like this thick uh -huh. and that I'm slowly <laughs> working my way through at night and I... I'm going to sit down and guiltlessly enjoy a half hour of fiction reading. Yeah. Because I said I'm going to do that. And so it's part of my schedule and I'm going to get that thing read. And I, I'm, I'm excited for that. Yeah. And, and the fact that you planned it mm -hmm. liberates you in a sense to, to enjoy it in, Be a, in a deliberate, more intentional kind of way. Exactly. Yeah. Because you know the kind of reader I want to be is a reader that's also read a couple of great little pieces of fiction that were just purely enjoyment. Yeah, and I've I, decided that a long time ago, and, and then yeah. I, I, then I'll I don't read the Odyssey next week, I suppose, but like whatever, right? Yeah, I, so I do something similar <coughs> whenever I go on vacation, which admittedly is not very often, but but when I do go on vacation, I forbid myself from reading okay. anything which is even remotely related to my teaching or research. Okay, which is a challenge because my field of teaching and research covers the entire Western tradition, so I've <laughs> I've gotta I've gotta pick things that are really out there. Yeah, ants. Ants, yep, actually, you may laugh, but sometimes, yeah, that's what I've taken on vacation. And uh, that has been a great break for my mind. And also, this is a new thing I'm doing during the semesters when I'm teaching, because my whole life rotates around a college schedule. During the semesters, often my nighttime reading, when I do do nighttime reading, is, is somehow teaching or research related, because it's a convenient time for me yeah. to get a little yeah. bit in, except Friday nights. Okay. Friday nights and often Saturday nights, what I've started doing is 
put the books away that yeah. have to have some connection to my work, even if I enjoy them. And I enjoy almost everything that I read for work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's not like drudgery for me anyway. But put that aside out of principle and read something totally unrelated for sheer pleasure. Mm-hmm. So right now I'm reading, uh, what's it called? It's, it's a history of the Apollo program of, of you know, moon, yeah, moon yeah, yeah, yeah. landings. Uh, it's called, I think it's called A Man on the Moon. Okay. The author's Chaikin, C-H-A-I-K-I-N. Yeah. supposed to be a great, it has been so far, a great yeah. book about the Apollo program, not related to anything at all that I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. I've been reading that in spare moments and loving it. It's actually provided some analogies and anecdotes that I've told in, in my classes. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I have, an, I have another one for you on yeah, that. Um, please. Uh, Operation Paperclip by Annie Jacobson. Oh, this sounds familiar. Yeah. What is, so what is that? Tell me. She's a really interesting, uh, kind of contemporary historian. Um, it's basically the story of how the U.S. poached all of the top Nazi scientists after World War II oh, in the, order to win right. the space race. All the German rocket scientists. Oh, yeah. it's, it's, mm, it's I, interesting yeah, and I, a little terrifying. Someone else has, has recommended that to me, too. Yeah, I, I, find, I find stuff like that. Contemporary history, oddball, oddball yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I try to... This is a good rule of thumb. So a lot of my reading, if you could see my spreadsheet, would not surprise you. It'd be the sort of thing that you would yeah. predict that I would be reading. But I try to put a few things on there, at least every year, mm. consciously saying to myself, what would someone who knows me never in a million years predict that I would read? Let me read a few of those. And the problem, <laughs> you know? then the problem comes is then you become the person who's read the oddball things and that becomes predictable. So uh, how, do you, yeah, how do you get back? It, it, <laughs> I think ants threw me that for a loop. Be. I wasn't expecting oh, that. Oh, they're that's so pretty fascinating. Good. Pretty okay, good. let me tell you about this just for a second. So there's this American scientist who pioneered a method of making uh, hard casts of the inside of ant colonies, which is actually kind of a difficult engineering problem. How do you... How do you make a physical representation of the internal structure of an ant yeah. colony when it's buried underground? Yeah. Uh, and, and how do you how do you you know hook this up to your to your scientific work? And uh, I'm forgetting this guy's name at the moment. Maybe we can put it in the description so people can buy this guy's book because he deserves it. Um, I think he's passed away now, actually, but his his estate deserves it. Yeah. A lot of, you know, a fair bit of it is technical. I don't really understand <laughs> some of what he's saying about ant behavior and so on. But it's fascinating and it's totally bonkers. And I think I asked for it for Christmas or my birthday or something. My wife got it for me. And the look she gave me was just like, you've, you've finally just lost the plot. Yeah, you know? yeah. But that was rewarding for me because I was like, that just tells me that I'm succeeding. Yeah in diversifying my reading uh, so that my wife thinks I'm a little bit crazy. But yeah, maybe yeah. she'll get used to that. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's fun. And it, it's so, I, um, I read a book, one of the guys in the podcast that, that I do recommended mm-hmm. it. Um, it's called Super Mario, How Nintendo mm. Conquered America. Interesting. It, it's just the history of Nintendo. Wildly interesting. <laughs> and in a shocking turn of events, the uh, author, I think it's Jeff Ryan, Jeff Bryant, I forget incredible writer like huh. just littering it with little classic references that if you know you know right. like i was just doubled over laughing at he'll just make a little odyssey a little odysseus reference and just doot, doot, in this ostensibly like you know 80s 90s western history book and you're like yeah it, it's a complete charming surprise and now i know actually a relatively decent amount about the how nintendo the business practices of nintendo in the early 2000s around the wii 
Yeah, and this is, this is the thing, you know, when you're reading about human beings and the things that they do, okay, so on one level, you're learning about Nintendo and the video gaming industry and all, and all these different sorts of things. But any kind of study of human behavior like that, mm. whether or not it calls itself a study of human behavior, is going to enrich and expand your kind of vicarious experience of different ways of living and different ways of thinking about reality around you. Um, because I mean, the whole world of video games is, is, it's pretty new. It's a pretty mm. new thing in human history. Right. So there's going to be, there's going to be unexpectedly profound and beautiful realizations that come out of even the most unlikely places. Like I've had some moments when reading about ants <laughs> of just kind of transcendent happiness of like, this is the most incredible thing I've ever heard of. Yeah. And it's happening under my feet all the time. And yeah. I had no idea. You know, now maybe that's a silly example, but that that's valuable to me because as I would say to my three-year-old, you know, who made the ants hmm. and whose, whose character at some level do, do some, do, do these things about them, uh, reflect. And I mean, creation is so incredibly complex. You know, I'm not saying that you can read a book about ants and just easily derive like five theological principles from this. I don't think it's quite that easy necessarily, <laughs> but <clears throat> cultivating a sense of wonder for the physical creation. Maybe you're not interested in ants, but surely there is some part of the physical world that mm. interests you and you can learn, you can learn unexpectedly deep and profound things in, in unlikely places. Mm. So that's a fantastic place to end this. Dr. Tyler flat. This was, this was a great conversation. Thank hey, you. I've had a great time. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you listening to this episode. If you found this conversation impactful and you want to make more of these interviews happen, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash chats under the sun. Every dollar I get over there goes right back into gas money and equipment costs and all the other things that go into running a podcast. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast and other projects I have going on, hit me up on Instagram at it's the Volk. Once again, Thank you for listening.